today's guest is very fascinating because it's about psychedelic medicine. Now, quick disclaimer, um, psychedelic medicines are, or substances are still illegal in a lot of parts of the world. So this is not, you know, condoning or suggesting that you should go out and do that. You definitely need to talk to your professional or health professionals. If this is an experience you decide is for yourself, make sure you're doing it with people that are responsible and have experience and access to the proper support structures that you need. For me, I don't think this is an experience that I'll ever have. It's something I'm fascinated about. There's a lot of research on how these types of medicines can help PTSD, anxiety, depression. And, and so and research is being kicked up again through popular support of, with Tim Ferriss, or if you've read Michael Pollan's most recent book, How to Change Your Mind, I think there's a Netflix series on it. But this is a very fascinating arena for really doing some deep personal diving, right? And it could be a bit spiritual in the fact that it allows you to connect more and be more empathetic with people or to access something that, that feels greater. But it's it, a path, and again, it's not for everyone, but Jonathan talks really confidently and very frankly about the pros and cons of these types of experiences, who it might be for, who it might not be for, the amount of vetting that his organization, Behold Retreats, does to screen potential folks that want to try these transformative transformative psychedelic medicines and what you need to prepare for the journey and then sustain it afterwards. It's a very fascinating, fun conversation. Again, coming from someone that probably will never have this type of experience, but is interested in just how different it seems, right? I hope you enjoy it. I hope you approach it with an open mind and again, we're not advocating for these types of experiences one way or the other, but I think there will be a lot more on the horizon for this as research continues to develop and therapies that are targeted towards helping people with specific mental ailments is realized. So with that, enjoy my conversation with Jonathan D. Potter and enjoy this conversation. How's it going, Jonathan? Going really well, Sean. Thanks for having me. Super uh, thankful to have you on today. Right off the bat, you were talking about plant-based medicine or plant-based medicine experiences I saw in, in a lot of the research I did for this interview today. So first off, what do we mean by that? What kind of plant-based medicines are we talking about? And... Yeah, full disclosure, I, I've been resistant to these types of experiences myself going on. So I have a lot of questions and I'm just really curious about this topic. So I want to explain what I guess plant-based medicine is right off the bat. Yeah, sure. Happy to share. So generally speaking, when you hear people talk about plant medicine or psychedelic medicine, there's a bit of an interesting overlap between those two groups. So 
generally speaking, when people are speaking about plant medicine, they will be talking about, say, ayahuasca. They will be speaking about perhaps San Pedro. They might be speaking about iboga. So these are all powerful entheogenic or psychedelic medicines that can be found naturally occurring around the world. And then confusingly and perhaps unhelpfully, there's also <laughs> medicines such as psilocybin, which is actually magic mushrooms, which is of course a fungi. And then there's medicines such as bufo alvarius or 5-MeO-DMT, which can come from a variety of sources. It can actually come from a plant. It can come from an animal and it can also be synthetic in nature. Mm. And generally speaking, when people are talking about psychedelic medicine or plant medicine, they're actually speaking about the, the broader collective category of psychedelic medicine rather than some subset. But again, the definition that sits in people's minds can actually vary person by person. And so okay. there's, yeah, there's a little bit of disambiguation sometimes required when people are getting into the weeds. But generally speaking, these are medicines that are number one, neurogenerative, which means they facilitate the growth of new neurons. And number two, they support neuroplasticity, which means mm. that they allow regions of the brain that don't normally freely communicate and exchange information to do so more readily. And then they can also facilitate really powerful transformations in healing. We can relive childhood traumas, uh, begin to release and work with some of the energies that are down there, some of the impacts upon our own development that have taken place, and also deep spiritual experiences. So improving our understanding of what is a year <laughs> about people experiencing universal love and the interconnectivity of all things and all of these other kind of more cosmic and mystical experiences that have been written about for hundreds and thousands of years. Right on. Okay. Thanks for clearing that up and giving us a, a little bit of some of the common reasons why people might use psychedelic or psychedelic medicine. So I'm curious with a little bit of the, the definitions out of the way, I was watching a YouTube video where you were explaining your experience about how your parents growing up in Hawaii, how your parents were, I think you said hippies is the quote and how you rejected substances up until mid thirties, or you had a successful career, you had a successful life. And then you, somebody convinced you to give it a try and you were ready at that point in time. Could you explain? So in my world, I like to call it the call to adventure. When somebody sets off to live a more meaningful life or make a bold decision to transform their lives, there's usually something in their heart or their soul that's calling them to something more. And so I was yeah. curious, did you have that moment? And could you explain a little bit about that? I did. I certainly did. I was cool. working in Hong Kong as a strategy consultant. I had been doing that for about five years. And for those first five years, I found that incredibly intense, but also I found it meaningful. I was, mm -hmm. the learning curve was very steep for me in moving into that line of work. Most people, if they get into consulting, they generally start straight out of university. It's <laughs> the way in which you do forge your early career skills in the corporate world. But I joined consulting when I was 28. And I joined in a role that I think was probably a little bit senior for me, if I was, if I'm to be honest. And so the learning curve would have been steep naturally. In this <laughs> instance, it was very steep. 
And so I found those five years very rewarding. However, at the end of those five years, I was leading quite a large team, a team of about 150 people. I was, I had multiple clients and a lot of large projects on the go. I just remember reaching this place of that no longer having any meaning. So whether I had gone for another client, another bigger project, another type of project, I just remember looking at myself in the mirror and going, I don't know what the answers to life is, but I know that this isn't. And at the time I was an atheist, I didn't have any spiritual experiences of my own to speak of. And so at that point, I just had to, I had to begin a search and I took a year off. And as part of that, attend one of these first retreats myself about seven, seven years ago now. And so, yeah, that was the, the opening for me in terms of, shall we say, creating some new meaning. There was a lot of healing to be done as well, but certainly it opened the doorway to spirituality and new meaning in life. Right on. Right on. I am not sure if you're familiar with Michael Pollan's How to Change Your Mind book. And Tim Ferriss has done a lot of work in funding research in psychedelics. So it's always been something I've been a little bit more interested in as I've gotten older. From your experience, how did, did it feel like a switch? You went through your experience and all of a sudden you had all these new ideas and all this new, this new world to explore. Was it a process? <laughs> what are the pitfalls? I had so many different questions, but maybe start yeah. with like, how was that transformational experience before and after the event? I don't know what, what to call it, but yeah. I will share that I, I wasn't very well prepared for the experience, mm -hmm. nor did I really receive any meaningful guidance coming out of the experience. And I went into the experience as an atheist and I came out honestly pretty confused. I had some very powerful, very frightening experiences, I would say. And mm -hmm. that, I've spoken about that a little bit in the past. It was really, I was not in a good way. It was a very challenging experience for me, particularly the first, the first ceremony, but also the first ceremony was really just a lot of fear, a lot of fear coming to the surface and a lot of fear that I didn't know how to process because I wasn't well prepared for the experience. These medicines. You'll hear people speak about them very positively in many cases. I look at them more neutrally in that they help us amplify our sensitivity and they help us gain access to our subconscious mind. And so what was happening in my case was that a lot of these big fears that I was holding on to were coming up very quickly all at once. And for me, someone who was at the time quite emotionally disconnected from my childhood traumas. It was really just a lot happening all at the same time. And so I was contracting in fear away from the fear rather than able to work with the emotions, release the emotions and to progress through the trials and tribulations that were presenting themselves at that time. And it was, it took me many years to actually recognize what it was that had taken place on retreat. Now, that being said, I did have some very positive transformational experiences <laughs> as well. In the second ceremony, 
there was a moment where I remember just receiving this download of, wow, it's, there's nothing holding you back in life other than you. And it was so clear. Mm -hmm. It was a, a message that was like felt in every cell of my body at the same time. And then there was this little, this little piece of doubt that crept in and it was like, yeah, but it's not a hundred percent me. There's these other factors around me as well. <laughs> and my boss did this and that and the other thing. And then the message just came back like 10 times as strong. It's like, this is, this, it's just you. And it was simultaneously <laughs> the most empowering, humbling experience that I had in my life to know that we are really the creators of our reality to such a strong degree and that we, that all of the things that present themselves in terms of challenges and arguments and uh, dynamics at work, talk. Those are all things that we've chosen. Those are all things that we've created so mm. that we could further our own evolution. And, and yeah, I gained a lot from the experience, but equally part of my motivation for establishing Behold Retreats was very much to provide a lot more support and a lot more guidance than I had received for my first Right on. Right. And, and it set me up for my next question beautifully. And that is, what do you wish you would have had in that first experience to prepare yourself for it? And then what kind of guidance should you have had or would have been the most helpful in that moment? Yeah. If I can speak in general terms, most people come into this work with that. Some intentions, some motivations themselves. So I mentioned some of those motivations before. In my case, I think I was really just searching for more clarity on what I should be doing. I was taking this year off from work and, you know, just seeking a little bit more clarity in that sense. However, I didn't really do much deep preparation. So I didn't have any tools for mental and emotional work going into mm -hmm. that. If your education was anything like mine, John, you probably <laughs> weren't taught tools for managing your mind. You probably weren't taught tools for managing your emotion. <laughs> and that's predominantly how most of us experience ourselves is through our thoughts and through our emotions. And so we are like a bit like babies in, in, in a sense <laughs> out of school. We still don't have any of the, the core, core life tools for managing ourselves. And what <laughs> we do with our guests and what I wished was there for me is really setting very deep and meaningful intentionality that relates to the emotions that are presenting, the thoughts that are presenting in your everyday life. And for most of us, there's some version of I'm not good enough that is, that is playing out in, in our mind. And there's many reasons for that, but, but fundamentally it's not true. And so there's a bunch of stuff that needs to be surfaced and processed and ultimately released. So that ultimately you can begin to find love for yourself. And then once you find the love for yourself, then you're going to find a lot more love in life more broadly. I think that's mm -hmm. really what work is all about. It's really, it's yeah, you go have cosmic experiences and thought, but ultimately it's about how much love do you show up with for yourself and, and the world on a day by day basis. So that's really what I, I wish was there for me as just a lot more preparation for such a, a powerful and, and transformational 
experience because yeah, ultimately we're left after such an experience, we're left again with our own minds and our own emotions. So unless we move the dial in terms of how we manage the mind and manage the emotions, then we've just had this kind of multidimensional experience, which honestly can bring some confusion. It can really shake the way in which we perceive reality. And so doing that without any tooling, I don't think is necessarily as it's just not as beneficial as this work can be. Definitely. Definitely. And so I'm curious, could you go into maybe a couple of specific tools? Because I imagine that whether you have a psychedelic therapy session or experience or not, like you're saying, we're not trained in any of these tools to help us navigate and live in this world. Regardless if you have that experience or not, what are a couple of common tools that can help people manage their thoughts, manage their emotions, and manage their intentions? Yeah, absolutely. So I think I'd, I'd start by mentioning meditation, of course, just the practice of sitting down and um, trying to find inner peace and watching mm-hmm. the, uh, the thought machine that is the mind <laughs> do its thing and try to peel you away from a, a state of peace. And, so, you know, once you really go for it for the first time and you sign up for a 10-day silent meditation retreat mm-hmm. and you begin to witness the level of activity and the degree to which one does, one is not choosing the, the thoughts that are coming into the mind is really quite alarming actually, because you just see, wow, this thing is not really being driven by me, but certainly there's a lot that's going on in here. And so Mm -hmm. I think that's why I would say meditation. I think also there's tools for metacognition that I would say just to help us become more aware of the thoughts and the thought patterns that are, that are emerging. The distinction there is you're, you are the thing that's watching the thoughts not the Mm. thoughts themselves. And so I think in the Western world, we have come to identify so strongly with our own minds that we've really reduced the human experience as a result. It's, I think for so many of us, which was the case for me for so many years, I thought my mind was the top of my hierarchy of self and it's not the soul. The spirit is the top of the hierarchy of self (laughs) and that goes perhaps even further, depending upon how, how deep down the rabbit hole you go. But, but fundamentally, yeah, returning the mind to be back in service to the whole rather than mm-hmm. the mind thinking that it's the, the big boss. These medicines play a really powerful role within that. But ultimately, we need to hang on to that understanding, that metacognition, that awareness in order for us to really benefit. The third thing I would mention would be emotional processing. In my case, I had a big trauma when I was about four years old that was hidden from my consciousness. Uh, And it was actually not the first retreat that I discovered or rediscovered that experience, but a, a subsequent private retreat that I did. And through that, I came to recognize there was a lot that was just fundamentally emotionally disconnected in me through that huge trauma that I lived through when I was four. Mm. And so what we're trying to do through this work is to connect mind, body, heart, and spirit back into the ways that they should be connected so that we can feel good enough. We can feel whole. And 
So for me, emotional processing has been a really large part of that. And so just feeling the sensations in the physical body and saying, okay, what's, what are the energies and motions? What are the emotions? And then through using the breath, feeling into those sensations, bringing more energy to those emotions, and then processing and, and releasing those emotions. That's a very powerful tool to begin to let go a lot of the stuck energies that are in the body. So those are the kind of three of the tools that I highlight. We do a lot more in terms of also visioning. Anything is possible in relation to, in relation to who we are and who we become and what sometimes people do and what's quite typical in this line of work initially is that I might say, oh, I want to make a uh, hundred million dollars. Maybe that's my goal. That's me. That's my intention. People are often bringing, <laughs> you know, some perhaps egoic intentions. And this is where I think a coach uh, can really help us in relation to this. <laughs> Do you really want a hundred million dollars or do you want more self-love? And usually through conversations, like, okay, yeah, I actually want more self-love, not a hundred million dollars. And so these medicines, they do respond to intentionalities. The putting a stake in the ground in relation to what you want, you might bring your ego to that in the first instance and have one set of intentions and motivations, but then in working with a coach, you might actually come to another set which is going to help you more closely align to who and what you truly are. And that's where you're going to find your success, your abundance, your joy, all those sorts of things, because it's a representation of who and what you really are, not a representation of the societal programming, which is that I need to go out and make a bunch of money, which is a completely. Definitely. Definitely. I feel like you're preaching to the choir <laughs> as a, a, I'm a co I'm certified high performance coach. And so a lot of these things without the medicine experience seem pretty aligned, uh, which is interesting. And we can go in more into that, but I, I'm curious. So I want to ask you more about how like the coaching part goes or the therapy part goes during and after, but also as someone that's not had these experiences and speaking of societal messages, there's a lot of alarmism or I'm a product of the D.A.R.E. program here in the United States, which is an anti-drug campaign that they ran in the 90s. And I had the shirt and bought into it and the whole thing it was very straight-laced growing up. What are like some of the risks or the downside? Because I imagine if you could find spirituality, you could also find whatever the opposite of that is, which is probably not great. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I wanted to... I also was part of D.A.R.E. It was oh. a very strong program in, in Hawaii. So I remember it. Yeah. I remember it very vividly. The police coming to uh, organize games when we were what, eight or nine or 10 years old, yeah. and all of that. And yet for me personally, the messages from that program very much aligned to what I saw around me in relation mm. to substance use, or shall we say substance abuse. Because my, a lot of my friends from a young age found marijuana and subsequently psychedelics still in their, I would say early teens actually. And it wasn't, I wouldn't say that beautiful things ever came of it. There was a lot of, yeah, there's a lot of negativity, a lot of pretty heavy energy around that stuff. And so I never felt any inclination myself because it was just like, What's going on here? Like people are clearly hurting themselves. There's, there's bad things happening. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I think 
this is clearly very powerful work, sensitive work. And so it's important that people understand the, the risks that are associated with this work. And I think I'll share with you a recent statistic. I think 70% of our applicants that come, that want to come on retreat with us, they have been thinking of a retreat of this nature for two or more years. Many of them have been thinking about it for five years or even seven years. So I think it was 25% have been thinking about it for seven years or more. So wow. it's a huge decision. And I say, I always say to people, we, we are quicker with our marriages and our mortgages than we are with, <laughs> uh, with uh, an experience of this nature. It's really, it's really important to spend the time and the energy to do your own research and to there's usually some conflict actually that's arising between the soul, which is the spirit. It's just saying, this is something that's going to help you. And you're a yes. And people know that at a deep and intuitive level. <laughs> and then the mind and the body, which is usually what we're used to listening to is throwing up all sorts of objections because the mind and the body to a large degree, they want things to stay the same. They want things to be predictable. And there's certain patterns that we're running on the mind and the body, and they want to stay within those patterns. And so something of this nature is putting those parts of yourself ill at ease. And, and so there's a, a negotiation taking place within the self that <laughs> runs its own natural process. And I think it's, it's a very natural, it's a very beautiful process. We also, with the popularization of this work, we also see that there's a very there's a large number of people that are now motivated to explore this work, not by virtue of their own years of consideration, but just because it's popular and it's known to help a lot. And that's actually, that's actually potentially dangerous for an organization like ours, because not bringing the right level of understanding or intentionality to work that is really powerful, really deep. And so I'll speak a little bit. I just want to set that frame before I jump straight into here are the risks. The first thing I would say would you can't you can't unopen the box, right? So if someone is experiencing life through a rational frame, as I was moving into this experience, then you're you're likely going to be opened to a new understanding. And the reason that people continue this work is that a new understanding is, is usually available and it continues to be available. So we continue to, I would say, improve our understanding. You touched on a key point there, which is what's the opposite of spirituality. And my answer to that is going to be spirituality because there's, <laughs> it's obvious that everyone wants to go up there and experience universal love and the interconnectivity of all things and the light and the love and wow, isn't that amazing? But the reality is that the, the gold is always on the other end of the fear. And so as high as we want to go with medicine is the same. We need to go low. Yeah. This is work that exists in polarity. Consciousness exists in polarity. So if there's going to be high highs, then there's going to be low lows. And so there's always some energies, some shame, guilt, fear, grief, apathy that's down there to be released. Now, that being said, I will speak a bit more directly to the risks in relation to what we screen for. Oh, I'll cool. be quite broad. Oh, cool. I think I'll start with the physical. People need to be in reasonably good physical health. They need to have a, a reasonably healthy heart. 
they need to have, uh, they need to be taking care of their body. If there's absolutely no attention to the physical health, then this is probably not an experience that they're ready for. I would recommend that they start by working on the physical health uh, a little okay. bit more. The, if people are not eating, if they're eating a whole bunch of processed food and a bunch of preservatives and toxins that are in the system as a result of that, and they step straight into a ceremony, say with ayahuasca, that would also not be a very good outcome because these are strong medicines detoxify the physical okay. body. And so there's actually a strong requirement to take three weeks of time to really prepare for the experience, prepare the physical mm. body so that the body is clean ahead of, ahead of such a powerful experience. And then the other things that we screen for is if people have serious mental health conditions, bipolar, schizophrenia, uh, multiple personality disorder, these are things that certainly they can be helped. And there's a lot more science that's coming out now around the potential for these medicines to help with these, I would say more serious mental health afflictions. But the sensitivity of that work, as you can appreciate, is very high. And so for an organization such as ours, the chances of having, shall we say, an episode, something that destabilizes that person even further from where they are, is considerably higher. Now, if you ask me, we've got very experienced medicine guides, people who really know this work. And so when they are looking at someone, they know where they're at and they know if and how they can treat them. They're looking okay. at things from a very different perspective than say a rational Western doctor. They wouldn't even necessarily provide the same types of labels to the condition that the person is experiencing. So for a multiple personality mm -hmm. disorder and say what a, a medicine guide or a shaman might say, they might say, there's another spirit that's in your, that's in your being. And so we're going to remove that spirit. So that's the way in which, shall we say more indigenous traditions might look at a condition such as that one, but I'm giving you a more kind of a Western frame in terms of the do's and do nots of, of psychedelic. And then obviously we're also looking for things that have come from the past, right? So if there's major addictions, if there are huge abuses and dissociation is common, very strong suicidal ideation. Those are also things that we would screen out just by virtue of this being high risk for us as an organization. Now, it's not to say again, that these can't help those people, but rather that it's just, we're not in a position to be able to help them. We would generally recommend that they go find more personalized attention that is more one-to-one -one in nature. We do provide private retreats, but it's just that's such a sensitive uh, group of people to work with. In terms of, let's, so let's just say that you don't fit any of the, the categories that I've just described. <laughs> you're healthy, you're doing pretty good in life. You, everything's moving in the right directions. You passed a quote unquote safety screening for a retreat of this nature. What's the risk there? The risk there is that you change. I think all else being equal, there are some risks of some destabilization, right? Because we all understand reality in our own way. There's a quote that I really love in relation to this, which is that what seems to be is to those mm. whom it seems to be. <laughs> so I think if we think about the state of the world at the moment, it's very clear to me that 
a lot of people are coming to understand that many of us fundamentally inhabit different realities. And it's not that, it's not that Sean's reality is right and that Jonathan's reality is wrong. It's that they are just different realities. We're different consciousnesses. It's our own consciousness that mediates the entirety of our experience. You've never had an experience that was outside of your consciousness. It's just, it's the lens through which we perceive everything. And so when we do this work at a high level, we are changing the lens in a very deep and fundamental way. And so I used to experience reality as material and dense and 3D. And now I don't, I experience reality in, in quite a different way and the mm. material and the dense in the 3D is a part of that reality, but it's not the entirety in the way in which I, I see things. And by definition, a successful transformation is destabilizing, actually. There's no soft way to change the nature of the lens through which you perceive all things. And so that's why it's as and when these major transformations in perception do take place, it's really important to work with a coach, with a guide that is going to help you find new stable foundations for the ways in which you perceive reality, because there's a lot that's going to shift in relation to perhaps what you do for work, where you find joy, how you relate to one another, how you relate to yourself, how you want to spend your time, how you don't want to spend your time, all of these things are going to shift. And so. I would say to people, I can't remember if I just said it, but you can't unopen the box. So once you open this, it's open and you're like, wow, okay. So reality is not what I thought it was. And so if one major shift is possible in the way that I've just experienced, then what else is possible? If you're a curious person as I am, then you're going to be inclined to continue the exploration of <laughs> what is, and that's a, a deep process and not for everyone. And so it's important that people really consider if they're ready for, for this. So I hope that gives some context about what I would describe as the general risks, as well as the, the risks to the, the stability and the way in which you perceive. Yeah, no, that, that definitely paints a, a great picture for, <laughs> so I'm a systems guy by training. And so we have an adage like garbage in is garbage out. And I would never say that you're physical body, your me emotional or mental states are garbage. But if those aren't right, going through this transformational process, it's going to be a different experience based on how those lovers play in your life. So I absolutely love that idea. And the idea that this is a one-way street, you're not going, there's, there's no way to, to tread backwards. And so there's that risk of the unknown that, that people face inherently in the, the experience, but it's also life as much as we try to trick ourselves into thinking that things are stable and okay. So much of life is we really don't know what's going to happen in the next five minutes. Being open to that, I, I think is, is pretty cool. Uh, I did have one question on potential risks and that is, is there like a particular age group that you should wait until your brain's fully formed at like 21 or 25, or you're good to go at 16. Is there like some type of physical physiology that, or growth that has to happen before these experiences are 
beneficial? Yeah, so I'm going to answer that in, in two ways, which is I think there's the generally accepted societal answer, which is, I think it's generally speaking, something like 21. The brain continues to grow, obviously, I think more, more physically until 25. Mm-hmm. And certainly I would say that as we grow older, let's just use the number 30, then there becomes a the mind becomes, I think, naturally more patterned, or it's very easy for the mind to mm-hmm. become more patterned. So we're, our thoughts are following the same kind of subset of neural pathways more commonly. And so there's actually a loss of neuroplasticity that's coming with that. And so I think often some of the most powerful transformations you hear about are with people who are 60, 70 years old, just <laughs> because they've been a particular way for, let's just say 40 or 50 years. And now all of a sudden they see things entirely a different way. And that's because they've regained some of their neuroplasticity. I always say to people, we all know someone in our lives where if you were to present them some new information, you already know how they're going to respond to that. Mm -hmm. And so it's a loss of the function of the brain when you really think about it, because it's just following a predetermined path. You already know what they're going to do and say about the information that you're giving them. It's really quite sad when you think about it, because it's just, wow, this thing is not operating the way it's intended to operate. It's been programmed to a large degree. Yeah, I think that would be my general answer. Now, again, if you go back to ancient wisdom lineages, if you go back to indigenous tribes, if you go back and you look at this from a more historic and culturally immersed perspective then what you will find is that often these medicines play a role in rites of passage from childhood into adulthood. And that generally speaking, those take place, it would say between 12 and 15 years old upon the person and depending upon the culture. And so again, we're looking at this in the West from a very different perspective than say an indigenous tribe would be looking at this, mm-hmm. but considering, yeah, the thousands of years of lineage that exist and why they exist in particular ways versus I think the West, which I would have said eight years ago, I would have said that the West is got all the answers and moving in the right direction. Now I look at it very differently, which is we're clearly out of harmony and out of balance in many ways that's presenting in our physical health, that's presenting in our emotional health, that's presenting in our politics, that's presenting in so many different ways on a societal level that we can't help but see that there that there is a requirement for a return to a more balanced and sustainable way of life mm-hmm. okay thank you for that that yeah that, that's uh, very curious i'm you mentioned like the history of these types of medicines as like a rite of passage or in spirituality. I guess when you, and in Behold Retreats, do you folks follow those types of, you know, it's about what is ritual ceremonies? Ceremonies is probably closer to, to what I'm thinking of. Or is it something that you've melded your experience with Western society and, and the Eastern ideas together? Yeah. It's a really good question. It's also a very sensitive subject. 
I came to recognize years after my own experience, my own first experience, that actually a different belief system was actually being superimposed upon me in my first experience. And that's not hmm. quite right. It's not that, and so I'll share a little bit about the way in which we hold this work and, and why we do it. So it's not that any person has your truth for you. That's the same game, actually. That's not what we're looking <laughs> for. What we're looking yeah. for is ultimately what we're looking for is spiritual sovereignty. So that means that someone is directly spiritually connected to what they might describe as their higher power or the higher self or source, many different God, many different labels that <laughs> we might use to point at this thing. And so it's not that, it's not that anybody else has the truth for you, but rather that these medicines facilitate your own self-exploration and your own furthering of understanding of what other truths are there and available for you. And I think that each of us individually is our own little piece of a much bigger puzzle. And that's really part of what's taking place mm -hmm. is that as we evolve, that more of us are coming together in more meaningful ways and collaborating in more meaningful ways. And that's furthering our own individual as well as our own collective evolution. And so the way in which we host this work, I'll share a little bit. You might say, oh, clearly the West, the Western world doesn't have much of the answers here. You probably shouldn't go into a, a white walled clinic and take <laughs> some of these medicines and sit with a doctor. They're probably not going to yield you the best experience, probably, because they don't really have a deep spiritual and energetic understanding of the nature of this work. However, some people feel inclined to leave their stock trading desk and to go up the Amazon and to find the most authentic experience that they could. That can also be very challenging for a large number of reasons. What I often say is that large group ceremonies may be the norm for these indigenous tribes, but they were generally dealing with, say, the last three or six months of tribal drama that they were coming together to clear the air. Whereas we're bringing multi-generational trauma stuff that's been passed out for generations and generations. So we're bringing a much different type of energy. And so we host this work with number one, small and focused groups. So typical group size for us would be seven to say 10 or 11 guests which is much smaller than what is typically out there. We respect all faiths and all belief systems. We welcome a lot of Christians from the U.S. and atheists from all over and Muslims from Saudi and Dubai. And all faiths and belief systems are welcome in the way in which we hold this work. And that relates to us pushing any version of the truth. And then also it's, we really look for expert plant medicine guides, people who have done this for a decade or even decades. So they really just have a lot of experience in hosting this work. And also we host typically one week long retreats, which is a really immersive way to do this work. You can really disconnect from technology, spend a, a week with yourself and a group of like-minded people who are ready to go deep with themselves and really do some deep self-exploration work. And so holding this work in a way that, as you say, weaves together the best of the ancient wisdom lineages, as well as is respectful and appropriate for a more Western psyche is what was what we were doing. Excellent. 
That brings up a good point or something occurred to me. In context, more ancient practices, it is more community-based. And I imagine you're bringing all these different ideas, all these different folks, all these different cultures together in a, a small group. How does community factor into this experience? As I imagine, if you take a look at like the stereotypical 60s, are you turned, tuned in or not? It's, it's this, we had this common experience with psychedelic LSD or whatever it is. So we're part of that tribe or, or not. And, and so I'm not trying to say it's like us versus them, but I guess the question is, is there a fostering of community after this experience with people that have shared this? Or because I imagine like in the ancient practices, it's like bringing the community together on a common habit or practice that the community has. You know, I don't think I quite have that clear, but you get what I'm saying? No, I absolutely. And I'm okay. really glad that you raised it because it's so important. I think the truth is that we live in a, especially in the U.S., we live in a hyper-individual culture. Mm -hmm. And we did a piece of research a couple of years ago that showed 46% of Americans believe that they are the best person they know. Self-belief is amazing. Don't get me <laughs> wrong, but, but that's a level of ego, I think, that is really unhealthy. And you can see it each time. I, I no longer live in the U.S., but each time I visit, sometimes I'm just sitting next to the table. There's a table next to me and I hear some of the conversation. I'm just like, wow, this guy is really, are you speaking for like 25 minutes straight without a, a single break for any other person to, to even provide one little bit of information or to receive and in, in, in knowledge receiving or anything. It's just like this one-sided dynamic. Wow. This is really fascinating stuff. You don't see that uh, in Asia where I live. You don't see mm -hmm. that at all. And so I point to that because I think community is so important. And one of the, one of the things that I think that we are guilty of in the West is turning everything into a problem. And mm -hmm. with the growth of ongoing self-help work, and dare I even point the finger at plant medicine work, coaches, therapists, I think we're all guilty of this to some degree, is that what we've done is we've turned human beings into a problem to be solved. And that's really a big a big mistake in my understanding, because I think the human experience is something that's not always easy, but it's certainly something to be celebrated and something to be celebrated together. So that's why yeah. I think it's so beautiful that you raise community, because I think that's what we're missing so fundamentally in Western culture. We feel disconnected. We feel like we don't belong. And because we're so disconnected, because we don't feel like we belong, the purpose is missing too, because it ultimately comes back to service. Or once you have done enough of your own exploration and we've all got some stuff that we want and need to explore in order to further our own evolution, we need, generally speaking, we will have some lower level stuff that attracts us in life, right? So it could be greed, it could be pornography, it could be alcohol, it could be bad substances, it could be chasing after, chasing after the other gender, it could be many things that are work actually is another addiction, highly normalized addiction. <laughs> yep. Any way we can feel like we can escape ourselves. And so 
it's important. I think community plays such an important role at really helping people see themselves more clearly, because when we're all living in our own apartments, whatever it is that makes us feel comfortable, turns out that life isn't as meaningful or as valuable as when we're living in systems where there is mutual care for one another and different people can see different aspects of yourself on a more regular basis. And then as a result of that, help different aspects of yourself on a more regular basis, because that's where it's really going to help you uh, forge your soul, because that's what I believe the purpose of this experience is. There's another quote that I love to share here, which is your soul is for the benefit of mankind. I came across mm. that one recently. And I just really love that because mm. it points at this really high point that there's this, you're this, you're the soul that's here on earth. And there's something very unique, very special, very individual that's embedded in your DNA. And mm. your job as a human being is to do what needs to be done in order to access more and more of what, what you really are. And then to bring that forward out in here into this 3D, but it's not this work with plant medicine. It's not about going up to play with the stars. Yes, you can do that, but it's about bringing it back down here into the 3D. Mm-hmm. And once you've benefited yourself a little bit, then you can focus more on benefiting others. And that's where the real magic happens. I believe. I absolutely love that. And I think it actually brings the whole conversation back when we were talking about how it's based in love for yourself and love for others. Community is people. And I recently had a professor from University of Michigan on who does his research is on brand love. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's, he has a, a, a book that he came out about it called The Things That We Love. And it basically saying that everything in our life that we love, if you have attachments to like your microphone, your guitar, TV or whatever, it's really just a proxy for, and in, in relation to the people that you love. I love my TV because it brings my family together. We watch movies together. And that's what I, I want that community experience. And it's a weird, this is a psychedelic therapy is a different kind of way to maybe get there, but it, it's interesting to see how that idea it's all, at the end, it's all about love, right? The Beatles had it right. It's all about love. So that's awesome. 100%. 100%. I, yeah, I agree with that. And I think also in, in our retreats, you also see a lot of people quickly develop a lot of love for one another. And mm-hmm. it's interesting, right? Because we have so many loved ones around us in our daily lives. And yet somehow, for often for many reasons, there's some conflict, right? There's some karma between us <laughs> and the ones that are closest in our lives. And so it can be difficult to feel that kind of unconditional love for mm-hmm. our parents and the ones who are closest to us. It's conditional and it's, uh, it's, Hey, let's maintain use. This is your side of the fence. That's my side of the fence. And so it's interesting when you see a whole bunch of strangers come together and they have some meaningful breakthroughs. They really support and love one another, how quickly deep and meaningful bonds can form. And so in our chat groups after the retreat, you can really see how well people are connected. They want to stay connected. They want to go back on another retreat together in the future. It's really amazing that when we open up to the power of love, how much becomes available to us. Hmm. Awesome. Uh, That brings up a good point. So having run a bunch of these groups over time, of course, you know, the processes and things. So I'm always looking for patterns. 
I'm curious, are there any discernible patterns of transformations that generally people have? Like maybe it's unique for each person, but have you seen any trends or any kind of threads of commonality that maybe surprised you? I'm just super fascinated. So this is cool. Yeah, there's, it's the question is interesting because my mind immediately went into the number of different ways in which I could answer that question. Cause there's so many ways to answer that question. And the answer is of course, yes. I would say that there are a set of relative patterns and there's a set of absolute patterns, right? Mm -hmm. So we all have our own relative human experiences. And then as far as I can tell, there seems to be also absolute truths that, that each of us can discover for ourselves. That's why. When, whether we read the Upanishads or the Bible or the Quran or dot, there are many universal truths, absolute truths that are common across cultures, across time, when you read what mystics have captured. And so I think certainly there's a lot of absolute truths that we see over and over again. People are like, oh, the only thing that's important is love. And you're like, yep, <laughs> of course. Or everything is already in divine order. Uh, and that's a really beautiful experience mm. where you go, oh, I see the role that, because, because it's, it's without a doubt, there's a lot of suffering in this world. There's a lot of things that we often wish were different. And so it's very easy to, most of us think that things will be okay with, and that's actually mm. a very painful place to be. Like things will be okay when there was world peace. Or things will be okay when I get my promotion or things will be okay when I find the love of my life or And so we're actually to a large degree, we're removing ourselves from accepting reality as it is here and now. And so we're creating this gap between what is and what should be. And that's at a fundamental level, a painful place to live from. And through these experiences, we come to accept and, and indeed the love more of the good as well as more as what we might label as the bad. About four months ago now, maybe five months ago, I actually, I flipped my motorbike and I broke oh. my collarbone and it was genuinely one of the best things that's ever happened to me. <laughs> and if I wind back eight or nine years ago and I had the same accident, I wouldn't have been able to see it that way. Because I was given so many lessons alongside with this, this accident, it really showed me subsequent to the accident, I was shown very specifically how I created the accident, why I created the accident. Mm. And I was given a pretty good list of lessons that came out of it <laughs> really helped me further my own belief in my own ability to heal myself. So I took my x-ray to three different orthopedic surgeons. All three of them said, you need to go into surgery immediately. I listened to my intuition. I said, no, this is, you don't need to go into surgery. You're going to heal this yourself. And I did. And four weeks later, five weeks later, I was back to, it was like for orthopedic perspective, it was a miracle. I had basically full range of motion within four or five weeks. And I would say I had 80 to 80% 80 strength in the bone already. And so there was just absolutely no need for surgery. And as you can imagine oh. from doing this line of work, I already had, shall we say, a reduced sense of trust in the medical system <laughs> uh, at all. 
once this happened and I was able to heal my own bone through meditation and listening to certain sound vibrations and uh, a lot of rest and no painkillers, then it completely changed my perspective on the meaning of, of suffering and injury and for, for myself, but also on a more collective level. These are things that are happening so that change can take place wherever there's suffering is it's the universe trying to nudge us in a direction to have more love fundamentally mm. so that we experience less suffering. Wow. That's amazing. <laughs> I'm glad you're okay too. It's such a cool story. Shifting gears a little bit before we close up, if you could start a meaningful revolution out in the world, a fulfilling transformation, an authentic movement, what would you call it? And why would you call it that? Yeah, I would call it, why am I creating this? <laughs> I love that. <laughs> so we tend to, we tend to identify with the experience <laughs> and we ascribe all sorts of stories and narratives and mm -hmm oh, this person did this to me and that happened to me and it's not fair and this should have happened or that should have happened or I should have gotten this or I should have achieved that. And it's just not true. Things are happening exactly as they're meant to happen because either we can see things about ourselves and the dynamics that we create, good, bad, and ugly, and we are able to abstract away from it and take the lesson and learn or not. And so there's a quote that I love, which is like, smart people learn from their lessons. Wise people learn from other people's lessons. Mm -hmm. And I really <laughs> like that. And so what we, once we begin to engage with the world in understanding that we are co-creating 100% of mm -hmm. our reality, that it, everything really begins to take on a new significance we really begin to think much more clearly about how we want to spend our time, how we want to spend our energy. And, and each time suffering emerges, an argument either with my mom, and <laughs> we have lots of dissonance between us. We love each other a lot. She's on a healing journey herself, and there's a lot of love, because, but certainly dissonance can arise. And the question I always ask myself is, okay, why am I creating this? what's the lesson? And for me, my mother is my teacher for unconditional love. And it's really hard. It's really hard. It's much <laughs> harder than treats to, to truly love unconditionally. She's going through a really intense period of her life from, from a health perspective. And there's, from my perspective, there's some inconsistencies in the ways in which she's managing herself and her condition. And it's sometimes I feel like it's just, it's the, I want good things for her more than she wants good things for her. Mm -hmm. And for me, that's a very painful thing to experience at times. It's hard to stay in unconditional love when you're sometimes seeing someone who's doing things that are not necessarily what you think is in their best interest, but it is in their best interest because they inhabit a different reality than you. And so to be just truly accepting and truly unconditionally loving is, is I think is one of those, one of those things that it's, it's a big lesson and I truly for all of our major friendships, all of our family members, each and every one of the people who are close to us, they have major significance in terms of their ability to help you see something big 
about yourself. Mm -hmm. And so when those dissonances arise, rather than to shy away from it and say, okay, let's just talk about this later. My encouragement would be to lean into these experiences. Be like, you really are seeing things differently than I am. And that's okay. And I honor that. And I love you. And I want you to take some time and energy to understand how I see things and why I see things the way I do. Because between those two versions of reality, there's a higher truth. And that higher truth, lock it together, you're going to love each other and love yourselves even more because of the revelation that's taking place. And so there's an invitation and an exploration there that is so powerful once we truly take it for what it is. Wow. Why are we creating this? I, yeah. <laughs> that, yeah, I love that whole idea. I'll just leave it at that because I think it's great. Jonathan, before we let you go, if people want to follow up with you or with Behold the Treats, what is the best way for folks to reach you? And I'll put it in the show notes. Yeah. Generally speaking through our website, we do have a little following on, on Instagram, but we do most of our work online through our website, behold-retreats.com. We, we do things a little bit differently. We select each of our guests individually. And that's really important to us. We want to make sure that we're really able to be of service to a high, at a high level, uh, to each and every of our guests. So there's no big green book now button uh, on our website. <laughs> awesome. Cool. Definitely go check out the whole retreats there. I'll have that in the show notes. Jonathan, thank you so much for being on with us today and sharing your wisdom. Yeah. Thank you, Sean. You've asked uh, really great questions. The, the time has flown by so quickly and uh, yeah, it's been a real pleasure. Likewise, man. And um, with that, thanks for joining us on the Meaningful Revolution, folks. 